News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. A little science and technology for you this morning, and we're going to start with a question. Wouldn't it be great if you could get a machine or a computer to do something for you just by thinking about it? It's actually called a brain-machine interface, and yes, it is something that researchers are working on. So how could we use this? And most importantly, how close are we to doing this? Well, Dr. Tom Carlson is a professor of assistive robotics and vice dean for the Faculty of Medical Sciences at the University College of London and joins us now. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. Thank you for having me on your show. Well, this, this sounds like something out of a science fiction movie, Dr. Carlson. Where would we use this? Yeah, well, I guess often uh, fiction does lead the real science, so we get lots of inspiration from the movies. Um, but I think really uh, there's a lot of uh, applications in rehabilitation, helping people to recover function that they've lost um, as assistive technologies for, for people that are not going to recover that function, but they might be able to control uh, wheelchairs or prosthetic limbs and things by, by thinking. Um, and perhaps also more widestream in the gaming industry, offering new and exciting ways of interacting with your computers. Okay, so what does it take? How do you, how do, you do this? Great. Well, so our brains are full of uh, neurons. Uh, and when we're thinking about doing things, they're talking to each other. And when one neuron talks to another, there's a little spike of uh, electric impulse inside the brain. Um, and millions of these are needed to, to make your arms move or, or to think about various things. And we can put then uh, electrodes on the, the surface of your, your scalp, so on your head, and they can detect these tiny little currents going on inside your brain. And when you're thinking about different thoughts, for example, thinking about moving your right hand, you get a very different pattern of electrical activity in your brain compared with if you're thinking about moving your left hand. Um, so then if we can dis distinguish using machine learning or artificial intelligence between these different patterns of electrical activity in the brain, then we can map these two commands. For example, you can think about moving your right hand to tell a wheelchair to turn to the right, and you could think about moving your left hand to tell a wheelchair to move to the left. Okay, I'm fascinated by this because I remember watching a documentary about this once, and here's my question to you is, does our brain work like that? Do we think about moving our hand before we move our hand, or do we just do it instinctually? Like, I don't say I'm going to move my hand right now. So how do we translate that? So yeah, you have lots of different types of uh, of motion planning that goes on. So some of the more complex movements you will actually think about in the pre-motor cortex of your brain. You'll come up with a plan and then the motor cortex will turn that into motions that it wants your body to perform. And then those will be sent down the motor neurons, down your spine to your muscles to tell them what to do. But then we have other sorts of movements as well, reflexes, which uh, occur from the outside world um, uh, as a reaction to an external stimulus, for example, where your arm will move, but without your brain having to think about it, it'll be just going straight through the spinal circuitry. And then for complex movements, like uh, concert pianists, for example, we hear a lot about muscle memory as well. So you're not uh, in real time thinking about moving each individual muscle of, of the finger, but you have this kind of orchestrated um, ensemble of motions that are all encoded into into one thought, for example. Right. So when you say encoded, does that mean you have to code all of that movement for a machine? Uh, or at some point, does is there a way to just be able to tell the machine to do it? Yeah. So, so what we want from a, a human user perspective is that you think about something fairly natural. So as I said, thinking about moving your, your left hand or your right hand is a very good uh, input for somebody who is paralyzed and cannot actually move their hands anymore, but their brain can still think about doing it. And then the challenge is that we then use something like machine learning in order to get lots of examples of somebody thinking about moving their right hand. And we can learn using machine learning this uh, pattern of activity. So we don't have to specifically manually code it for every individual movement, but you do have to go through a training process so that the computer can understand uh, your specific brain activity. Right. How close are we to this? So in the lab, we do this all the time. My students are working on it right now. Um, we've got uh, some uh, clinical trials that are going on around the world. Um, colleagues are working at, at different levels. Um, and there are some 
commercial systems that are out there. But we've still got big challenges, I think, in terms of improving the accuracy and the reliability um, to be using this as a kind of everyday way of, of interacting. Right. But I can imagine that for people who do have, you know, prosthetic limbs or need some help or assistive technologies, this is this is a life changer. It could be. Um, there are limitations. So when we're looking at brain activity from uh, a kind of non-invasive uh, way that I use, looking at electrodes placed on the head, this is kind of rather like watching a, a football match from a helicopter. So you, if you're watching a football match from a helicopter, you might be able to see roughly where the players are. You might be able to guess where the ball is, but you're unlikely to be able to see the ball itself. And so we, we're kind of looking at the activity of all these neurons in the brain we can have an idea of kind of the the area of activity the hand for example that is is being thought about but we can't tell the detailed motion that you're you're trying to make um if you go closer down so if you land that helicopter and you're close down uh, on the ground and seeing what's happening in the football match then you can see the ball and so uh, if people are willing to have electrodes placed inside the brain in a, a more invasive way, then we get closer to those neurons and we can decode um, more fine movements. Dr. Carlson, is this work that is happening all over the world or are there, you know, are you specialized in this? Are there a lot of people working on this? I'd love to say I'm the only person specialized in this, but actually, you know, it's, it's like all science. There's a lot of uh, teamwork and people working it at different levels. So uh, there's some good work in, in the uh, US. There's a, a lot of work on the very invasive work going on there. Things like the Utah Array have been around for a long time. In Europe, we've got things like the WeImagine uh, device uh, with a, a big consortium of people working together. And that's sort of semi-invasive. It doesn't penetrate the brain, but it, it just sits on top of the brain. Um, and then I, I work a lot with this non-invasive stuff, mostly because my grad students don't want me poking things inside the brain. Um, but <laughs> I can I think, see why. Yeah, that might be a problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I think, you know, depending on uh, if you've got somebody that doesn't um, have the option for recovering long term, then perhaps they're more willing to go down the, the invasive route. Obviously, there are risks with any kind of surgery and, and putting things in the brain. Um, but we do this routinely for things like deep brain stimulation for, for controlling Parkinson's disease. Um, equally, people that maybe have a stroke and want to use this um, as part of their recovery, they're only going to be using the device temporarily. So they probably prefer something that's not going to be embedded inside the brain and, and a less invasive approach might be better for them. Oh, it's so interesting to learn about this. Dr. Carlson, though, thanks for your time this morning. No problem. Thanks for having me on your show. That's Dr. Tom Carlson, a professor of assistive robotics and vice dean for the Faculty of Medical Sciences at the University College of London. And they are working on, it's called a brain-machine interface. So you would think it, the machine would do it. You wouldn't actually have to say it, type it, tell it or anything like that, you would just think it. And we are, as you heard, closer to it than you might have imagined. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's check in with our Scott Chance this morning because we've been talking off the air a lot about this strike that's going on in Hollywood that will definitely have an impact on us here. Good morning, Scott. Hi, how are you? I am good. Thing. It's cooling down in here, thank goodness. So Great. we'll get there. Um, but let's talk about the strike because sure, it looks like Hollywood, but boy, Hollywood North is oh, going to feel this. Yeah, absolutely. I have done, as I, I know a lot of people have, uh, various jobs in the film and television industry uh, throughout my career because, you know, that's such a huge, huge piece yeah. of BC's economy. And as we have heard time and time again, it's so reliant on what happens in L.A., Hollywood North here. And, of course, this is going to have rippling effects, not just for actors and performers, but so much of the industry that relies on the production, that relies on actors and performers. So when all of that stuff is shut down, 88,000 people work in film and television in B.C. aren't going to be working. $4.8 billion in economic kind of spin-offs benefits. That's how much the industry is worth in this Huge. province. Huge. And that means nobody, food, location services, like you name it. Yeah, and, like, and who knows how long this is going to go on for? Even even catering, you know, they don't they don't have to cater the sets, you know that that That's was huge. an entire industry that these people are going to be out of work, waiting for work, looking for work. So a lot of people here hoping that this is going to get resolved pretty quickly, 
but I don't know. Well, we're going to talk a little bit later with a Hollywood lawyer who's going to explain in more detail to us what the big issue is here, Scott. But you and I were discussing this earlier, and, and it's really, it comes down to these writers and actors, performers feel that they are not being fairly compensated for this new era of of production, which is like streaming. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot to that. And I think one of the things that we have to remember is people think actors and they see, you know, there was this story at the Oppenheimer premiere that like Matt Damon and Cillian Murphy. And Emily Blunt, they, they walked They walked out. off. Those guys aren't affected, obviously. They're all millionaires. But there's over 160,000 people in the SAG union. It's people like local actors on Vancouver Island, you know, local voice actors here in the city that are, that's what they do because they love it and they're just scraping by. These are the people that aren't getting what they need to be getting from the studios. Yeah. And I just, I want to highlight this one. It's an anonymous quote from a movie studio exec. This was published in Deadline. What how, Their take on this, and this should give you some idea. The end game here is to allow things to drag on until union members start losing their apartments and losing their houses. Cold as That's ice. Cold. So I recommend to people, if you're curious about this, great article in The New Yorker, if you can actually find it online, uh, go to The New Yorker online, and it's about the show Orange is the New Black, Mm -hmm. which was really put Netflix on the map. Like, yeah, House of Cards did, but Orange is the New Black that cemented Netflix. Right. And the thing is, Netflix doesn't release viewership numbers, so you don't know how many people have watched it, unlike broadcasting, right? Right. Which is all, you know exactly how many people have watched it and who has. And there are people who were regulars on Orange is the New Black. Actually, not just people, but most of the people who were not the stars, but the regulars on Orange is the New Black, who could not afford to give up their day jobs and still work. And they only get, even though it's been watched around the world by hundreds of millions of people, they don't get any money from it, even though it's continued to run in perpetuity. That's insane. And Netflix is over here crying poor, like they have to raise the the rates for all of us subscribers, and they're not even paying their actors. They are not paying any of the residual people. When you think about how often you watch, rewatch, binge watch, and all around the world, how popular those shows are, the people who make those shows, and this is what I've learned in the last couple days reading about this, they're not getting any financial benefit from it. It's wild. It's, It's insane. And there's also this kind of attitude of like, yeah, well, you get to be on a TV TV show. So that there's that, you know, but it doesn't translate. No, it doesn't translate. I've so, said it before and I'll say it again. Simi, fight the power. <laughs> Different set of <laughs> rules for performers and writers. If they are making a show for broadcast television versus one of the streamers. And that's what the huge issue right. is here. It's really interesting. Scott, thank you. Yeah. This is mornings with Simi. And this Friday morning. Now let's check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver sun. Good morning, Vaughn. Good morning, Simi. I would imagine there's a lot of relief right now in government everywhere with this settlement, this negotiated settlement in the port strike. Yeah, government, federal government gambled that if you just uh, let the process go on for a bit and then stepped in at the right moment with a mediator's report and gave everybody a deadline, that that would lead to a settlement and they got it right. Federal Minister Reagan... I think you take a victory lap on this. And I would say as well, Simi, the B.C. government played a supporting role. The E.B. government did not join the chorus of voices from across the country that said Ottawa, you know, B.C. should be calling on Ottawa to intervene. The B.C. government's line on these things is the best deals are the ones that are freely negotiated and maybe with a little bit of pressure in this case. Right. But look, uh, this is a vindication for this approach to labor negotiations. It's expensive. Uh, there's no point in pretending it isn't. There was a significant impact on the Canadian economy and the BC economy, but they're back to work already. And I noticed uh, we talked yesterday about Canfor mothballing its Pulp mill in Prince George, uh, they've said uh, we're going back to work there as well. So, you know, uh, I've, I've grumbled a lot about this one, and I certainly, as uh, the listener will know, thought the government should intervene. The government didn't, and I think they look pretty good today. And there's a lot of history for that here in BC. Yeah, yeah. you know, it's interesting to think back. One of the reasons we heard that Ottawa was reluctant to intervene was a Supreme Court of Canada decision that came down 20 years ago now, almost. Uh, the BC government had jumped in uh, when it first took office, the BC Liberals, and imposed 
a new contract on the hospital employees union. And the High Court, the uh, case ended up uh, Supreme Court of Canada a few years later, and the High Court noted two things. One, the Liberals had used their legislative majority with 30 minutes notice to the union. The second thing was the High Court pointed out that the Liberals had advice from senior public servants in the government that they should try to negotiate with the union before just busting their contract and using the legislative majority. And the High Court came back and said, look, there is a right to free collective bargaining. It doesn't mean the union wins. It doesn't mean that at the end of the day, the government can't intervene. What it means is you have to respect the process and give it a chance. And I think that is what was vindicated here. The federal government said, we don't want to intervene too soon. We don't want to use the legislative hammer. We want to give the process a chance. They gave it a chance. And look where we are today. Yes, a 13-day shutdown. Yes, damage to the economy. But yes, also a four-year deal supported by the workers. We may ratify, and I think they will. And uh, we go on without having to head to use the legislative hammer. And we should talk a bit about the difference that makes, right? Like it just in yeah. terms of the relationship between employers and employees, having a negotiated settlement versus having one imposed on you, that makes a big difference. Yeah, it does. It makes a big difference for long-term labor relations exactly, yeah. in the workplace, for starters. You know, that, that deal that the Liberals imposed on the hospital employees union has taken 20 years for that to play out. There were, there were you know, successive things that were done. Uh, it spilled over into a teacher's contract dispute. It poisoned relations between the Liberals and the labor community. And of course, it ensured that you know, you're going to lose power one of these days. You use your power, you use the legislative hammer, you uh, abuse the rights of the union, and one of these days you're going to be in opposition, right? You're not going to be government forever. And I think that's something that governments with their majorities sitting there smug and saying, oh, we got the power, we can do it. Yes, you can. And someday you'll be in opposition too. And then you know, you'll realize what it means when the other side starts using its power. Yeah, it, and it, you're right. It just, it makes such a huge difference. So that's clearly something here in BC. Um, David Eby, I'm sure, is very relieved by all of this. Yeah. Uh, and, to, and to the other premiers, too, because the other premiers, I'm sure, were pressuring him at this premiers conference to do something. Oh, absolutely, they were. And, you know, we think about... Uh, uh, you know, the other thing, if the government doesn't ride to the rescue, of a labor dispute, doesn't use its power prematurely, the parties have to realize they're stuck with each other. You've got to sit there and negotiate with each other, grueling and frustrating and annoying and time-consuming as it can be. And I'm thinking here of the stand the BC government has taken on that long-running dispute transit services in the Fraser Valley. It's four months now. Now they've sent in Vince Reddy. He's generally thought to be a miracle worker, although he's asking for more time. But again, the real message coming from the BC government is we're not going to be there to rescue you. You've got to work these things out. We still haven't seen the New Democrats do anything more than you know, try to use persuasion, try to offer help, but they haven't used their legislative majority to impose any settlements yet. Okay, we were just talking about tra like strikes and, and the BC government's philosophy on that. And so it worked in the case of the port strike, but it, it did make me think that perhaps not in every strike because it, we still have this frustrating transit situation out in the Fraser Valley. Yeah, that one has gone on. A long, long time. Yeah. As, you know, the, the students and people who depend on the transit service out there, it's a real test to the government's view that you don't intervene. I mean, the, the, it's one thing to not intervene after a couple of weeks. It's another thing to let it drag on and twist in the wind for four months. So the government did step in and they sent uh, Vince Reddy in. Uh, he's known as the miracle worker and he has a, a long resume of settlements to point to to show that he can do it uh, ready however ask for more time he finds that the parties are dug in still there so if you think about the model that was used here federally uh, what would be the next step for 
the NDP government, well, uh, you could ask uh, Reddy to hurry up and submit recommendations. If you can't mediate, uh, it's called booking out. You write a report and the report says, here's where I think the settlement is. Uh, you can give the parties a bit of a chance to digest that and then you can step in. But again, this NDP government is extremely reluctant to use the legislative power, uh, partly because, uh, you know, the labor movement closely tied to the NDP still doesn't like uh, imposed settlements. Uh, but also, I think it's a philosophy of labor relations. Harry Baines, the uh, labor minister, former labor leader, so that's where he comes from, is really wedded to this idea that no, you let the process go. I mean, note, go back to the week before last, O'Regan is out here, the federal minister, and who does he meet with? He meets with Harry Baines, and they haven't said publicly what they said, but Baines, I'm sure, said, hey, this government's philosophy is you gotta give the process a chance, even when it hurts. Uh, this is huge dispute with the ports, hurt the national economy, no question. You're right, Simi. There was pressure coming from yeah. other provinces. But at the same time, you look around today and you go, well, the next time there's a labor dispute in the country, the parties aren't going to go, uh, what's the point of bargaining? Ottawa's going to step in and impose a settlement. No, the message is you guys have to work it out if you can. Uh, you know, I'm sure that when the deal went to the, when the mediator's proposal, Simi, went to the parties yesterday, and they only given 24 hours to think it over, the parties knew that at the end of the day, if they didn't say yes, that probably they were looking at legislative intervention, maybe as early as next week. But, you know, that was part of the spur to them to go, this is probably as good as it's going to get. Let's take it. Uh, the union wanted two years. The mediator said four. That's what the companies wanted. But we haven't seen the other terms yet. But I'm sure there were trade-offs that the union could say to its members, we recommend you go back to work. We recommend a settlement because we got some stuff here too. And here's what it is. Okay. I also wanted to ask you as well about the fact that the BC government has now decided to join this uh, boycott of ads off of Meta. Yeah, Premier David Eby has joined the national movement, what, province of Quebec, federal government, uh, some organizations, uh, Unifor Union that represents journalists are all saying no more advertising on uh, Meta, They're pulling the ads from Facebook and Instagram. Uh, it's an important gesture, but, you know, I hate to be a curmudgeon on this, Simi, but uh, the BC government spent a million four last year. So $1.4 million on advertising on Meta uh, carriers last year. Um, let's see, Meta's revenues last year were $117 billion. Right. So the BC government just cut off of what Meta makes in about five minutes. So uh, it's an important battle that's going on here, but let's not kid ourselves. These uh, internet giants, these carriers, are enormous. They're bigger than most of the governments in the world when you put them all together. Uh, the American government thought last year uh, about cracking down on them. The company spent something like a quarter of a billion dollars in lobbying to make sure it didn't happen, and it didn't happen. So I don't know if governments can stand up to the power of these corporations. Um, you know, I guess as an individual person, you can say, well, I'm off Facebook or whatever. But seriously, these are some of the most powerful corporations in the world, some of the most powerful corporations that have ever existed. And I don't know if governments can make them change their ways. Uh, I haven't seen the evidence they can yet. Okay. All right. Thank you for that, Vaughn. Bye-bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. It is time to have our weekly check-in with Reggie Cicchini and find out what's been going on in the United States this week. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Okay, I I'm, don't know where to start because I really want to talk about what's unfolding in Long Island right now because this is a case that I've followed for a few years about the Long Island serial killer. And is it possible this morning that there is a break in this case? It is very possible. And this goes back to uh, 2010 uh, and into 2011. But from what we understand, at least uh, from 
local reports and from police that are in Suffolk County in Long Island, New York, uh, is that a man possibly in his 50s or 60s, said to be a resident uh, of a neighborhood on Long Island, has been arrested and it could be in connection, likely in connection, uh, with the discovery of four bodies back uh, in 2010 uh, that ultimately resulted in the discovery of 10 bodies uh, throughout uh, uh, the Gilgo Beach area in Long Island. Uh, it's unclear if the person in custody is is connected to all 10 people that were found. Uh, but what we understand uh, from, from police, at least, and from initial reporting is that the person will be in court later on Friday afternoon where an indictment will be unsealed. But it all goes back to uh, the initial discovery of one person that police accidentally came across when they were looking for a different person back in 2010 four women they were wrapped in burlap sacks uh and ultimately the evidence here pointing to this person and if it is the case uh, that this person is connected to then it would ultimately you know provide a little bit at least of comfort to 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 an area of new york that really has been asking questions for more than a decade and i know that it meant the end of one uh police chief's career out there uh, and the new police chief has made it a vow to find this person. I've watched a couple documentaries on this. It is a case that just is absolutely baffling. Uh, so some updates coming on that this morning. We will certainly be following it. But now I also want to ask you, Reggie, about this story. And because it's not every day you talk about something like this. But apparently a bag of cocaine was found in the White House. What is the deal with this? That's a good question. What is the deal yeah. with this? Because we don't actually have any answers to it. It was discovered uh, over the the long weekend earlier uh, in the month, uh, the July 4th long weekend, in an area that's often used by people coming in and out of the West Wing on the west side of the White House, uh, including visitors who may be getting tours uh, of the West Wing. And, you know, this went to a lab. This went through forensics. There was uh, intensive research done on the fingerprints and the DNA that was on this baggie of coke. And ultimately, what we've now heard heard from Secret Service is they can't determine who brought it into the White House. And this has resulted in an upset amongst Republicans who are arguing that the safest residence in the world uh, was violated. They are concerned as to why police haven't been able to figure this out. And Secret Service came back to say, look, we have machines in place to deal with, uh, you know, detection of, of biochemical weapons, but not of things like uh, like illicit drugs like cocaine. Uh, you know, the Biden family wasn't there. Secret Service say we can't figure it out. You know, the case is closed, but Republicans are pushing back. Ted Cruz in the last 24 hours called this quote another Biden cover up. So what is, you know, kind of a mundane routine police matter is now becoming the latest political scandal in the eyes of Republicans. Uh, you know what? And in this case, you got to go, well, yeah, because it was a cocaine bag found in the White House. You feel like they should be able to find that out if they really wanted to. Like, if they can't find that out. What else can they find out? Well, and so look, they, they, police have come out to say we don't have drug sniffer dogs that are looking for certain drugs and not drugs because they really are more concerned about weapons and, and chemical weapons that could have an impact on ultimately the seat uh, of, of government uh, in the White House. You know, this will likely lead to possibly, you know, more scrutinized or increased security for people coming in and out but ultimately they say thousands of people may have come in in and out of that door over a set number of days and it would be almost impossible to figure out who who this who this baggie belonged to but secret services case closed oh boy okay i have a feeling that one's not going away uh now since we're talking about the president and the presidential race uh let's talk about the update here from donald trump because with all the legal things that he's got going on it sounds like he's asking the court to delay some of this for varying reasons uh he wants the court to delay this case well into uh next year possibly to beyond the presidential election because his team says that a they wouldn't be able to find an impartial jury because he's a presidential candidate because he's a candidate he's going to be campaigning too much and won't be able to focus on the case. They're complaining that uh, the amount of evidence that they have to go through is simply too uh, monumental and they're not going to have time to do this. And the special counsel says, hogwash, you've had plenty of time to be able to deal with this. Worth pointing out Trump's legal team and, you know, his associate that's facing charges as well. Their legal team hasn't even applied to get the the certification to go through classified materials. So there's a bit of foot dragging here. Uh, And the special counsel says, look, December is the perfect time to get get this done, we should go as quickly as possible. The first case is going to happen on Tuesday, where they decide how to handle the classified materials here. It's unclear whether the Trump-appointed judge is ultimately going to you know, give Donald Trump what he wants. 
But we are setting up for a showdown here for a trial against a former president who wants to be president again that is going to eat into the presidential campaign. Oh, man, that race, that race just keeps, ugh, it's, it's like the gift that keeps on giving, but I wouldn't call them gifts. I don't know the other word for it is. Uh, but before I let you go this week, Reggie, I wanted to ask you as well, I saw this title and I thought, well, what does it really mean to say that the world is officially free of chemical weapons when we know that's probably not the case? You know what? It's a little bit misleading, uh, even though administration officials in the U.S. say that the world's stockpiles of uh, chemical weapons have been destroyed. And that be- is because the U.S., you know, which tried to lead this pack and ultimately came up last in the pack, uh, destroyed what was left of its stockpiles last week when uh, when a nerve gas rocket was dismantled. Most of this was done in the U.S. in 2012, but scientists and researchers had to figure out how to do this uh, properly for what they had left. Uh, again, though, when you say world stockpiles, sure, but you know we already know that Syria uh, has been accused of using chemicals against its own people. Russia has been accused of this against people that it wants to go after. North Korea leader killed his own brother using chemical weapons. We know that they exist in smaller portions in some countries, but the U.S. says, look, the fact that large stockpiles are gone is better for humanity. The questions will remain, though, you know, how long will they be gone for? And will countries that don't allow for Western monitoring inside start stockpiling again? And what could that do in the future? But for now, the U.S. says that it's done. All right. Reggie, thank you. Thank you. Reggie Giacchini, that's our Global News Washington correspondent, helping us wrap up some of the stories out of the United States this week. This is Mornings with Simi. There's been a lot of talk about social media in the last couple of weeks, right, with this launch of this new, they call it the Twitter killer, which is Threads, uh, also part of Instagram, which is owned by Meta, which also owns Facebook. And so really, what is going on? Is this just like a battle of a bunch of really rich tech guys who want to control your information? I lean towards yes on that one. But Scott Chance has been looking into this and joins us now. Yeah, I had a really, really interesting conversation about this because, yeah, we've been talking about it off air and on on air and it's really intriguing. It's like the Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk kind of social media battle. And uh, Mark Zuckerberg, he's this kind of like elusive figure. We know him from like movies and articles and stuff. And some people think he's kind of like alien and crazy. And other people think he's like super uh, inventive and is like the future of our civilization. There's a lot out there. So with his uh, creation of threads and now Elon Musk and him kind of being caught up in this war for who's going to control like the micro blogging sphere. I I wanted to find out some more about Mark Zuckerberg and kind of what makes him tick. So I spoke with uh, an ex-Facebook CEO for Australia and New Zealand, Stephen Sheeler, to just sort of find out what's what's Mark Zuckerberg's end game here. Is there anything we should be concerned about? Tell me more. And here is what uh, Stephen Sheeler had to say. I don't think that Mark is um, is a is a is an evil person or a bad person. I actually uh, consider him a friend. I enjoyed working with Mark. Um, he, I think he wants to do good in the world. The concern I have about it is that, look, you, it doesn't matter if you're Mother Teresa. I think concentration of too much power in one purpose, person's hands and, and sort of unaccountable power in many ways is a problem. You know, he doesn't own all of Facebook. It's a listed company, but he controls it. He's got special voting rights, so you know he only owns a few percent of Facebook today, but he controls over 50% of the voting rights. So he has a board of directors, but essentially the board has no no power at all to, to do anything with Mark. Mark can't be fired. Mark can't be reprimanded. He doesn't have the same kind of, you know, kind of disciplines and accountability that a normal CEO would have. And I, I think that is, you know, kind of one of the fundamental problems of Facebook today. It's just Mark has too much concentrated power. And again, it's not because I don't think Mark is a good good guy. I just think too much power in one person's hands. And I think in this case of Mark, I, I think we've gone a little too far. Yeah, it feels like maybe um, a, a concern for a lack of representation. Um, can he truly identify with um, the entire cross-section of a, a billion different users? Um, what do you think... Uh, uh, is kind of the end game for him. Do you think that all of this is sort of a means to, to something else, whether it's like politics or um, a more influential sort of government type of role? Like what, what's his end game? Yeah, it's funny. When I, was, when I was at Facebook years ago, you know, there was genuine discussion of, you know, sh- you know should Mark run for president? And 
you know, that would be a great idea. I think that ship is well and truly sailed. I, I, I don't think, I think Mark is too controversial to go formally into politics. Um, I don't think Mark's that kind of guy. Just knowing his personality, he's, he's not particularly gregarious. He's not real comfortable with, uh, in the presence of other people. He doesn't like to travel. You know, all those things are probably, you know, kind of must-haves if you're going to be a successful politician. So I, I don't think he's, he's angling for politics. And in, in many ways, I think politicians probably have less power and influence than, than people like Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg do. You could argue he has a lot more power than any elected elected official in the world. But what's his end game? He wants to, if if and when there's a new computing platform that emerges, which eventually there will be, the iPhone will kind of fade away and something new will replace it, something more mixed reality. If and when that happens, probably more when it happens, Mark wants to be controlling that platform or at least have a major player in that platform wars and not be a sitting on the sidelines he wants meta and facebook to be front and center in the metaverse in terms of it is the platform for the metaverse so he's, he's been trying to get ahead of it i think in in retrospect we may see that he was prescient here and you know these investments were actually worth it but of course in the moment he is spending a lot of money on this space wall street hasn't been happy investors haven't been happy we haven't seen dramatic progress that's where Mark stands today. I think long-term, he wants the metaverse to work. He wants to have a new computing platform that he largely, uh, maybe not controls, but has a big player in. Uh, and then he keeps just growing, you know, he keeps growing meta into the metaverse for another 15 years. Uh, and, you know, by then he's he's in his 50s, coming up on 60, and probably then he probably pulls a Bill Gates you know, gets out of Facebook and then goes and gives all his money away and, and, and does good things. I could see him following that path. Like, I don't want to say that, you know, this puts Mark Zuckerberg in a, in a positive light or that I'm a fan of his or anything. But the idea of him becoming like the next sort of Bill Gates and that he creates something really great for everyone and then donates a bunch of money and kind of just, you know... That's an age-old way, though, of very rich people. I mean, think of Andrew Carnegie. Yeah. Right? Andrew Carnegie, we have every city in North America has a Carnegie library, and that's because Andrew Carnegie had so much money 150 years ago that that was his way of of making good with his name. Yeah, and I I do see that. I I just don't know what else these guys are supposed to do. What do you do with the money? Just like... Let it go to your to your uh, people who inherit it in your family. Oh no, that's disaster. Right. That's disaster waiting to happen, right? Or they sign the giving pledge. Okay, right? Like yeah. Warren Buffett's done that too. Yeah. So there are things they can do. I guess just you have to also question like how are they? This money is being made on the backs of information we are giving them. There is so that. we need to be care- more careful about the information we are providing because somebody else is monetizing it. and It's not us for sure. What I found most interesting about this, just quickly, is the idea that Mark. Zuckerberg was ahead of the social media thing. Before social media even existed, he conceptualized it in his head, and now he's trying to do that again with whatever the next thing is, and it sounds like for him, it's the metaverse. So interesting. Scott, thank you very much for that. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, returning to our conversation about BC's child welfare system, it's been in the news and we've been talking about it because of the absolutely horrific case of two small children who were abused by their foster parents. One was killed, the other badly injured, and the foster parents have now gone to jail for manslaughter. The thing is, they weren't visited by social workers for something like seven months. And all we know, all we've been told is that some people are no longer working with the ministry. But what we also know is that this is far from being an isolated case. How was this allowed to happen? How do social workers not visit a site for seven months when abuse is so clearly present? What are the repercussions of not following protocol? In fact, the representative for children and youth, Jennifer Charlesworth, called it one of the most egregious situations she's ever seen. So what we want to hear from people in charge is, never again, here's how we're going to fix it. We want details on how this is going to be fixed. And that's why we are very pleased to have with us Mitzi Dean, Minister of Children and Family Development. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. What can you tell us about how this case has impacted your ministry? Everybody is absolutely outraged. Um, as you said, it's absolutely horrific. Um, and uh, and all of us feel 
um, the pain and the anger that I know all British Columbians do learning about what happens in this particular circumstance. As soon as we found out that the home wasn't safe, we the ministry took immediate steps to make sure that any children youth connected with that home were in a safe place. And uh, we also took measures to make sure that any children youth who were the responsibility of anybody on that whole team was seen to make sure that they were safe, to make sure that they were in a caring and a loving and a nurturing home. And we put extra measures in at various levels throughout the whole of the ministry to make sure that children and youth are being seen regularly, being seen according to their needs, um, you know, depending on, on what their vulnerability is, what the placement was, making sure that um, children and youth are seen privately so that frontline workers can really establish with that child and youth a good relationship and find out exactly how they are feeling about about um, the home that they're in. I've been a frontline worker. I'm a qualified social worker. I know that the basics of doing the work are making sure that you see the children and youth, you make sure that they're safe. And I told my staff that this was not acceptable. We know, you know, that we have policies and procedures, we have practice standards that tell our frontline workers that you need to be seeing children and youth, you need to do assessments of homes where children and youth are placed, and uh, and that is fundamental frontline work, and it's unacceptable if uh, that's not being achieved. So, Minister Dean, then when you found out about this and you wanted to put these changes in place then, was it clear that this was happening? Like, are there other instances that you know of in the ministry where children had not been checked in on and absolutely needed to be checked in on? No, we put extra measures in place to make sure that um, that children and youth are being seen um, by frontline workers. Um, you know, I know that most of our social workers are doing the work because they're passionate about it, because they care about children and youth. And that's, you know, that's what drives us to get into this kind of work. And, you know, a, a lot, most of our frontline workers go above and beyond and they make sure that they are there, you know, at, at, even outside of office hours. They go above and beyond to make sure that they're there so that children and youth can reach out to them if there's any concerns or they're feeling unsafe or if they have any questions about anything. But we put extra measures in place to make sure that that we know, because I understand that people, you know, have these questions. How could this happen? Yeah. How do we know it's not happening now? How do we make sure it never happens again? And those are the fundamental questions that I put to my team as soon as I heard about this. Okay. So then when you you say face-to-face then, are there home visits? Do social workers talk to children away from an adult who may influence what they say? Yeah, that's exactly the point. Thank you for asking that. So it's really, really important. What we know is, you know, the relationship between the frontline worker and the children and youth is really, really important and vital. And so they need to be regularly visiting the children and youth having private time with them and spending time with them to be able to find out, are you feeling safe? Are your needs being met? You know, what, what are your goals? What do you, what's important to you? And what does the frontline worker need to do to support the people in the home caring for them to make sure that they're achieving their goals? Okay. We, so don't, that need, might be. we don't need to know names, but how many people lost their jobs over this? Anybody who was directly involved with this particular situation is no longer with the ministry. I can tell you that everybody through the ministry at all levels, including myself, have been absolutely shaken to the core by this, by what we learned about what happened to these children. And we have put measures in um, at all levels of the ministry to make sure that the basic policies and procedures that should have been followed in this circumstance are being followed with regard to every single child and youth who's in uh, the, the care of the government. Okay, so, so, so multiple sure. people then, you're saying multiple people? I can't comment on the labour relations. There's um, legislation that governs even what I'm told. So, I, you know, there's only very limited information that I am even told. So I am right. limited information then that I can reveal to you and your listeners. However, uh, we have a lot of uh, measures of accountability and um, we have a lot of uh, human resources, labour relations, policies and procedures that immediately get put into action where there are concerns of practice. And I can assure you that if there's any um, any questions around practice, 
that will be immediately um, addressed because it's so critical. Minister, do and, you, you can also understand though how, how the public, including myself, are so frustrated because this is not the first time we've heard of this happening and every minister has told us not never again and it happens again. And I understand that. And, you know, what we're dealing with here is a very, very long colonial history, um, you know, from so-called residential schools, 60s scoop. Um, I, you know, I know a lot of people associate the, the modern child welfare system with that colonial history and the intergenerational harm and trauma. And Indigenous children and youth are overrepresented in the system. And our vision is to respond to the calls that we have heard from Indigenous leaders for decades. That um, and and we've we've introduced legislation to support this. Indigenous communities want to exercise their inherent right of jurisdiction over the services for their children, youth, and families. So we introduced legislation last year to support that. That is our vision: is to work with nations to support them in exercising jurisdiction in the way that they want to. And so we already have one signed coordination agreement. We're in conversations with many other nations as well. We are actively working with the federal government who need to join us at these tables and support BC nations in exercising jurisdiction. And, uh, and, and, and you know, that is the really important work that we've been doing for the last few years and that I'm going to continue doing. And I hope that we can continue having that conversation with you about it because I think the public does kind of need that reassurance. But Minister Dean, thank you for your time on that this morning. Thank you very much, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. And for us to check in on our Vancouver Whitecaps, hey, they've been having a pretty good week, actually. Coach Vanny Sartini is with us now. Good morning, Coach. Morning, Simi. How are you? I'm very good. Not too shabby. 2-1. You must be feeling pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a good win against a good team. So, uh, yeah, uh, let's. Uh, we started the week perfectly. Let's finish uh, even stronger tomorrow. <laughs> I was just thinking, Coach, you sound the same. Your reaction is the same, whether you guys lost a game or whether you won a game. You always yeah. you always go, yep, yep, on to the next game. Is that you trying to keep it like, you know, on a level playing field for the players? Yes, and, and also it's the only way I would say to survive because uh, uh, you there's always game after game after game. So um, tomorrow it's going to be our already 29th game of the season in competition. And... Uh, uh, so, and most of the time you have to play in three days after another game. So you, you, you can't have too many highs and lows, but you need to try to, to keep steady and, and also help the fact that, uh, we have our chat in, in the morning and not after the game, after the game. That's true. Sometimes I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You've had time to think about it, I guess, or process yeah. <laughs> it by the time I talk to you. So that was two, one over Austin. That was your game on Wednesday. And now looking ahead, what's the next game? What are you looking ahead to? Yeah, we played the uh, galaxy, the Los Angeles galaxy. That uh, are a team that uh, they didn't start the season very well, but they, found their form recently they the last two games they they beat stronger team like lafc and philadelphia so probably they come here with all these uh, uh i would say confidence that they regained uh the other thing is that being behind they they need a win to try to get back into the playoff fight so it's gonna be going to be I would say an interesting game and hard game and uh, but uh, you know we have the advantage of playing home and uh, the fact that um, uh, you know we are um, I would say in a good role in, term, in terms of, uh, of performance in the last uh, four or five games we played very well uh, last week the week before we lost against Seattle but the performance was good so we need to, to keep playing like this you really do because it's tight in that ninth spot isn't it like you've got to still you got to keep it going yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so potentially we're a little bit higher because uh, we have uh, what we call a game in hand because we played uh, one or two games less than any other team so far. But uh, yeah, you need to win that game in hand in yes. order to be like you. Know, like, oh, See, that's why you're the coach. That's perfect. Uh, coach, thanks so much for your time this morning. Good luck. Okay, fantastic. Bye-bye. That's, that's Vanny Sartini, coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps. They play tomorrow against the LA Galaxy. They're in ninth spot, kind of right on the bubble there, but he's right. They have to keep this up. The great games that they've been playing and winning, keep it going. You can listen to all Whitecaps games home and away on our sister station, AM 730. 
This is Mornings with Simi. You've been hearing a lot about this strike that is going on in Hollywood, not just the writers that are on strike, but now the Actors Guild also on strike too, shutting down all productions pretty much. Huge impact here in British Columbia when you consider everything that is filmed here and all the spin-off economic benefits of that. So what is this strike though actually about? Why do we keep hearing that this is going to be a prolonged strike, that there's a lot at stake? So we wanted somebody to explain it to us. Jonathan Handel joins us now, an entertainment lawyer. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you. What is the mood like in, in the industry about these strikes? Well, very concerned. Um, the uh, the writers have been on strike for over 70 days now since May 2nd, and the actors uh, began their strike uh, technically at, at, at midnight, uh, 12 or 1 a.m. today. They're out on the uh, picket lines and, and in front of their on their way, in fact, a group of leadership is on its way to Netflix as we speak, uh, but actors will be picketing at all the companies. And uh, this is this is believed to be going to be a prolonged strike. There's a lot of bitterness between uh, the both the writers and the uh, uh, studios and the actors in the studios. A lot of uh, things were said in the room that uh, were not helpful, and um, there are a lot of uh, there are multiple issues that are that have emerged as roadblocks. So this hasn't happened since 1960, where you had both of these unions on strike at the same time. What are the roadblocks, Jonathan? Why is this particular dispute so contentious? It's uh, it's so contentious because it's a, it's a turning point in technology. It's a turning point in sustainability of and affordability of jobs. And so it's seen as very existential by the unions at the same time that the uh, uh, and, and and we should point out, you know, the the stars that you that you know and love are on strike also, but they are not the ones that this is about. They have their own agents who negotiate individual deals far above the union terms. The union terms are primarily of benefit to working class and middle class actors, people who might make 30, 50, 70,000, you know, 80,000, a couple hundred thousand even, you know, which is a healthier income. But a lot of people who struggle to make a living in high cost cities like Los Angeles and New York, the issues are, there are five of them, but uh, I'll hit them briefly for you. First of all, basic wage increases, uh, keeping up with inflation is an issue for the actors. The studios have not offered uh, anything that uh, comports with the, the last two or three years of inflation we've been having. Secondly, residuals, which are royalties paid when shows are rerun or stay on a streaming platform. Um, the residuals for streaming uh, don't incorporate any sort of success metric. What that means is, that a successful show like Wednesday pays the same residual as a plop like, call it Tuesday. Uh, there is no difference, and the actors are not comfortable with that, uh, nor are the writers. Um, second, Thirdly, um, AI. Uh, both groups do not want to find themselves displaced by AI. And this is a concern for crew as well, who have already started to talk about this in the context of the run-up to the expiration of their contract next year the contract for the IATSE or IATSE, which is a union that operates in Canada and the U.S., uh, incidentally. Uh, fourthly, for the actors, pension and health, their benefit plans, the certain mechanisms involved in the funding have not been updated in 43 years since the last actor's strike, 1980. The last dual strike was indeed 1960, as you said. And um, that is uh, something where the parties are far apart in terms of what the increases should be. Okay. And... And uh, finally, auditions. Uh, auditions, you, you know, you used to go to a casting director's office. There'd be 20 to 30 people you'd be competing against. You'd go in and you'd, you'd, you'd do your scene. Uh, now people are expected to tape their own auditions using their cell phones at home and submit the tape. And that creates, a, uh, first of all, a lot more people sending in audition tapes. And secondly, a lot of pressure to get it right, to edit and re-edit and do the scene again and hire someone to help you. And suddenly you're paying money to compete for a job that you're even less likely to get than you were in the past. And they want guardrails around that. Okay. Uh, once That's again, all- a distance. Right. That's all so interesting, though, when you think about it. But the one that I find I've been reading a lot about is the residual situation. So if you have a hit show on regular broadcast television, then, Jonathan, you get some kind of residual from that for forever, right? But on streaming services, you could have a huge hit show and you don't get anything. That's not true, um, uh, respectfully. Um, there is no back. 
people who are stars negotiate what's called back end, right. which is a, a share of profits and so forth. And that indeed has uh, in many ways disappeared in the streaming era. But residuals for streaming shows, uh, there's, a, there's a misconception out there that those have disappeared as well. They are they're threatened and challenged. They're not necessarily uh, the same uh, magnitude as they were on broadcast, but there is a residual every year that the show is on the platform. That's part of why we've seen deplatforming of some shows that were potentially viewed as less successful. I mean, like, you know, Westworld was evicted from HBO, uh, for example, and uh, other uh, shows on Netflix. Netflix has done the same. But there are residuals. But one difference is that the residuals in the network and, and cable world implicitly would go up, would be higher if the show was a success. Here in streaming, it, it doesn't depend at all on how many viewers watch the show. That's the thing. Okay, so you can have a huge right. hit show, and that's not going to mean more benefit to you uh, necessarily. Why don't the streamers have to report their viewership numbers? We, it's a free country. We don't have a law. Uh, you know, and they and they they are trying to use this technological inflection as a way of changing the custom and practice. The custom and practice in television, of course, was we had Nielsen ratings and other you know right. things of that sort, which were not reported by the companies. By the way, it was an independent company, Nielsen. But um, it's much harder in a in a world of fractured viewing when people are watching on their phones, their PCs, they're playing video games, they're doing all sorts of different things. It's much harder for a company like Nielsen to to do measurements. And so you really do want the, the sine qua non is the data from the companies themselves, which as you said, they won't reveal. All right. So then those seem like the two really big sticking points here. And as you point out, and I think it's important to emphasize that is this is not about the big time actors, right? This is about all the actors who try to scrape out a living doing this. This is about people who are finding their jobs increasingly precarious, who are finding their job, their, their wages, not keeping up with inflation who are not being given a piece of success, even as executives. I mean, uh, Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney, said that, you know, a success metric for residuals was just a, I believe what he said was it was, you know, unacceptable. It was just a, you know, un, sort of not a conceivable thing. Well, Bob Iger's own uh, compensation package with Disney has a success metric in it. He gets a big bonus depending upon, uh, you know, how he does over the next several years. So it, it's, it's there's a hypocrisy to it that people are reacting to. And, you know, of course, you know that you know people are uh, unionizing at Starbucks and Amazon warehouses and you, the UPS workers look like they may go on a strike. We've had other strikes. There's a rise and a rising concern among workers generally and among labor unions that this economy in the United States in particular has gotten so concentrated in wealth and inequality and income inequality that there just isn't the fairness to it anymore. And that's the big issue here. Do you feel like, does this seem like it's going to last a while? This is going to last a while, yeah. I'd be very surprised if this is resolved before uh, the fall. And how far into the fall, this, I should say, these, it's two separate strikes, two separate unions. How far this these go into the fall is, uh, you know, is anybody's guess. But the Emmys, which are scheduled for September 18th, are likely to be postponed to most likely January, actually. Um, the uh, actors cannot not only not act in uh, movies, uh, they can't do promotion for movies. So we have Oppenheimer and Barbie coming out uh, next weekend, a week from a week or so from now. There you won't see actors promoting them at Comic-Con, the big uh, venue in San Diego where, you know, the event where people promote these kinds of movies. We won't see it at the Venice Film Festival, people doing promotion. It's, uh, you know, there'll be an economic hit to the studios as well. Well, you just talked about a lot of economic hits, though. Like, we have the Toronto International Film Festival here in Canada. You're talking about, like, nobody walking the red carpet. Um, unless you like to look at directors and executives, you know, they'll, they'll be there, I suppose. Uh, but, no, that's exactly right, Tiff. The Toronto, the wonderful Toronto Film Festival, I should say, I've been several times, uh, will will not feature stars, and and for that matter, will not feature uh, writers. And it is it is going to be a very difficult situation. Closer to home, the economic impact is probably around thirty million dollars a day, if we take what the impact was uh, of the writer strike fifteen years ago, and extrapolate for inflation. Um, and you know that's. Every every person who's not working, whether it's a crew member, a director, an actor, a writer, 
the dollar they don't spend is a do- at a restaurant is a dollar or part of a dollar that the waiter doesn't have to spend when he or she gets off work and ultimately the waiter gets laid off because there's not enough business at the restaurant, then that's more dollars that they don't have to spend. And it uh, it ripples, you know, which is then another person that doesn't have an extra dollar. So it ripples through the economy. And it's a, it's a difficult situation. Oh, we're certainly going to feel those ripples up here. So, Jonathan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's a pleasure. That's Jonathan Handel, entertainment lawyer in Los Angeles, talking about the actor's strike and the writer's strike. First time since 1960 that both of those unions have been on strike at the same time. The ripples are really what we are going to feel. He talked about that. It's not necessarily about the actors up here. It's about the fact that all of the other people that are employed on a production that are now no longer going to be working, that's money not spent, that's no catering hired, no location services hired, uh, all of that comes to a stop as of today while this strike goes on.